Good morning. I'm really, really happy to be with you this morning. Um, as a priest who is primarily a seminary professor, uh, I have had a streak of really good luck, and I've considered myself profoundly blessed whenever I get to be welcomed into parishes like yours by people like you on occasions like this one. Um, I have never, ever felt like a stranger, even though I am. Um, in these sorts of situations. I'm always treated something more like a long-lost member of the family. And every time it happens, I'm filled with the same sense of wonder and gratitude and joy. So thank you again for that gift this morning. I am, as many of you might know now, a long way from home this morning. I've come to Southern California from Wisconsin in order to attend an academic conference down in San Diego. It's going on right now. I ran away. It's a big conference. It's the combined annual meetings of the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Biblical Literature. So it's about 10,000 of me in different forms, academics spanning the fields of biblical studies and theology and religion, meeting in small conference rooms and reading papers to each other and discussing their research. And for me, one of me is enough. 10,000 is way too many. It happens every weekend, every weekend before Thanksgiving, every year. Last year was Baltimore, the year before that was Chicago, next year Atlanta, but this year San Diego, late November. Even if you like cold, snowy Wisconsin winters as much as I do, this is pretty hard to beat. Now several years ago I was attending the same conference around the same time of year and I had the opportunity to be in a Sunday morning worship service where N.T. Wright was the preacher. I shouldn't tell that story because you'll realize who you could have gotten. Um, <laughs> but this year, uh, that year, um, it was the same arrangement. The Sunday was the last Sunday before Advent, the Sunday of Christ the King. And what I remember most clearly from Bishop Wright's sermon on that day was his observation that the Feast of Christ the King was a relatively recent development. And he suggested that it might be worth thinking about the ways in which it had affected our understanding of Ascension Day. And it, even though it was a remark that he just kind of made in passing, it wasn't the main point of the sermon, it caught my attention and it made me want to find out a little bit more. So what I learned was that the observance of Christ the King began in 1925, which is pretty recent indeed. And it was the result of Pope Pius XI's encyclical, Quas Primus. Originally, it was supposed to be observed in the last Sunday of October, the Sunday that would come before All Saints Day. Then in 1960, the Roman liturgical calendar was revised, and this commemoration was promoted to be included among other first-class feasts. And then again in 1969, it was renamed the Feast of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, and it was moved in the calendar to the last Sunday of ordinary time, the Sunday before the beginning of Advent. Now somewhere along the line, the Church of England took up the custom after the, the, the Roman Church had already moved it to this day. And our own Episcopal Church has as well, although technically this one doesn't actually appear in prayer book calendars. So here was something interesting to a church historian a Roman Catholic liturgical commemoration, 89 years old at the most, that has received fairly wide acceptance even in other churches, 
but has been celebrated on this particular Sunday for less than 50 years. What might account for its acceptance? What would have motivated the church to begin a new practice like this? What was going on in 1925 that spurred the Pope to call for such an observance? Pius XI's call for a new feast attending to the kingly reign of Christ was articulated in response to the social and political situation of his day. Looking around, he was deeply concerned with the rising tide of secularism in Europe and with the emergence of divisive nationalist movements and with pressures being put on the church in Italy to submit to the authoritarian rule of Mussolini. So in a very real way, Pius saw the writing on the wall way back in 1925. He saw the warning signs of an idolatrous allegiance to state, an idolatrous submission to instruments of this worldly rule and dominion, which, although they might promise unity and prosperity, could and would only bring division and enmity and genocide and other wasteful ravages of war, whether those wars were hot as they were in the years from 1939 to 1945, or cold in all of those long decades afterwards. So in other words, in some way, perhaps not with perfect clarity, but certainly with theological insight, Pius saw what was coming, the worst political and social catastrophes of the 20th century, in this, in the Christian West. He knew that if the gathering storm was to be averted, it would have to come as the gift of a power beyond those vaunted by secular authorities. The brewing conflicts of the 1920s, so deeply rooted in abusive human usurpations and violent exercises of power, could only be resolved, Pius knew, could only find peace through their submission to the true authority and the true power of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one whose power and authority could never be usurped, nor established and maintained by violence or oppression or threat, the one whose kingly power offers itself in humble and loving service, forgiving sins, setting free captives, restoring sight to the blind, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, raising the dead to new life, trampling down death by death, dispensing true judgment, establishing justice and equity. In Christ and in his kingdom, we are given to see and to know an authority and a power that is, as Jesus himself testified before Pilate, not from this world. The power and authority that Jesus exercises and that he shares with us and calls us to share with him is nothing that the world can give him, nothing that Jesus can wrest from it, whether by force or violence or any other means. The world the world we live in, our world, has nothing to give to Jesus that it has not first received from him as our creator and our redeemer and our king. And the power and authority, the kingdom of Jesus, is his own by nature. It's his power and authority, the power and authority of almighty God. And as such, it's the power and authority, the kingdom, that makes itself known in perfect love and in obedience unto death. Jesus' kingdom comes not, at, not by all the usual displays of worldly power to which we have become accustomed, 
but in a strong and gentle and loving justice, in selfless and humble service, in a long-suffering triumph over the human perversions of God's good will for us, a long-suffering triumph over sin and over death. Christ is the king who humbles himself to serve, not begrudgingly, just this once, but generously, willingly, freely, once for all, to teach us and to free us through his unworldly generosity and humility, his unworldly justice and love, and to show us that all true power and authority, all true kingdom, dominion, and rule are in the end God's self-giving and redeeming love. And this is why we, his people, are called to live and die in the way he does, in perfect love for God and neighbor. This is why we, as his people, are called to turn the other cheek, to forgive as we have been forgiven, to love our enemies, to care for the poor and the needy, to wash feet, to take up our crosses and follow him through death to eternal life. This kind of a kingdom sometimes might seem to us to be very remote, residing in a long distant past or somewhere away beyond the blue. It might sound hopeful and dreamy, not of this world, in a way that makes us think that it's only an ideal to be admired, but not terribly practical. Though I think it can be very tempting to think this way, the message of Jesus in his words and his deeds and in his continuing present power among us tells us otherwise. The kingdom of God proclaimed and made present in Jesus is not cordoned off, not separated out from or totally isolated from our here and now, from the world we live in, the world of our daily experience. Though it's something quite different from what we are all too willing to accept as the way things are, Jesus' kingdom is not and can't be kept apart from or kept out of the mundane and temporal and even quotidian events of our world's history. And so in our gospel lesson this morning, we catch another glimpse of the coming of that kingdom in its fullness. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He'll put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Here's an image of clarity, an image of a world that we don't yet know or experience, where wrongs and rights are sorted out and a perfect justice is decreed and established. It's the kind of arrangement to which our best human kingdoms have aspired, but they've only haltingly managed to embody it in approximate foreshadowings and moments of resemblance. But what's compelling to me about this image of perfect reconciliation, perfect righteousness, perfect justice, is just how much it has to do with some of the very ordinary matters of our life. To the righteous, those who receive the blessing of God, Christ says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. 
Here's a description of the way of life, the good life, life in Jesus' kingdom. Those fit to participate in its blessedness, the blessedness of the kingdom of God, are those who serve the hungry and thirsty, those who welcome the stranger, those who clothe the naked, those who care for the sick and visit the imprisoned. These are the deeds, the works, the practices that fit one for the kingdom of God. These are the ways of living that line up with and make manifest and open the doorway to the coming of Christ's kingdom, both in the world that is to come and in the midst of the world that is. But it comes as a surprise, and even to those to whom it comes in the gospel lesson this morning. When? When did we see you hungry or thirsty? When was it that we saw you a stranger or naked? When did we visit you sick or in prison? These are surprising ways for the kingdom to come, surprising ways even for those blessed by the Father to have come into the kingdom. They're not special or unique or extraordinary deeds of human ingenuity or invention or worldly power or statecraft. They are actually shockingly ordinary expressions of care and concern, of mercy and justice, love and service. By the world standards, they're small things, little things, just a drop in the bucket. They're not grand programs or lofty agenda. They're such ordinary things, such ordinary kindnesses, that any of us can do them. But these very ordinary deeds of love and mercy and justice, these very ordinary deeds of kindness and humble service, these are the very means by which God brings us to share in his eternal kingdom. These are the very kinds of things Christ does in our midst the very things he teaches us and gives us his Holy Spirit to do so that we can live as he lives and we can be as he is and we can show forth his Father's glory in the world. In Jesus Christ, we are given to see and to know and to experience the truth of God's kingdom not far away and dreamlike, but surprisingly close at hand and face to face with ordinary human need an ordinary human woe. In and through Jesus, God shows us what a true king, a real king, is. He invites us into his kingdom's true power and glory. He gives us his grace to become the people of that kingdom. And he does this right in the midst of the most ordinary and easily overlooked corners of our lives, in hunger and thirst, in poverty and need, in suffering and pain. Jesus is the king who reigns not from the clean safety of a distant heaven, but who enters into the very midst of the messy confusion of a world gone wrong, a world he loves and serves, a world he gives his life to save, to restore it and to bless it by his good and gracious rule. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.